This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 14th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. James Madison warned Americans that of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded. Today, of course, the war power has clearly shifted in favor of the executive. At Cato University, Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies, discussed some of the modern rejoinders to the fears that Madison and his predecessors expressed. If you just think, just any memory from a recent war uh, or a distant one, it's obvious, right? The state grows during wartime. Uh, But this is the crucial point, that government grows during wartime and almost never returns those powers back to the people when the crisis abates, when the guns fall silent. This is what Bob Higgs called the ratchet effect. Um, So many other ways this is expressed. One of my other favorite books is called War and the Rise of the State by Bruce Porter. Uh, And he he talks about this in the context of the founding of the Republic. Um, Perhaps most importantly, James Madison. His His views on this point were very well known. A standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. Um, And then he reminded them that the means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. Foreign danger. He went on, again, reminding his fellows of the history. Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. So I think the sentiments of the founders were fairly well known. Madison, of course, was was a bit too young to have fought in the Revolutionary War, but George Washington, we all heard of him, I think. Um, He said this, among the many kernels of wisdom in his farewell address, he advised his countrymen to avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments which under any form of government are inauspicious to liberty and which are to be regarded as particularly hostile to Republican liberty. Thus, the founders placed very strict limits on the one branch of government that they thought was most prone to warfare. That's the executive branch. Um, And Madison explained the rationale uh, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson. The Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive branch is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It, the Constitution, has accordingly with studied care vested the question of war in the legislature. During the constitutional ratification debates, this was a key point of contention between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, between the advocates for the new Constitution and those who were opposed. One of the key defenders of this Constitution, James Wilson, to the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, said, this system will not hurry us to war. It is calculated to guard against it. It will not be in the power of a single man or a single body of men to involve us in such distress. Later, Madison claimed that this clause, the clause vesting the war powers in the legislature, was the most important in the entire document. So, so far, I've just laid out 
why libertarians, unlike conservatives and liberals, who sometimes see the growth of the state as a, as a beneficial side effect of war, libertarians are always jealous of this, nervous about this. And I've also tried to convey that among the founding generation, uh, this sense of trying to constrain the state's ability to wage war as a means for constraining the state was foundational to the document that still, thankfully, barely, governs us. So that's, the, that's where we get to today. And, and I think that this point bears repeating, uh, and I'm actually somewhat encouraged. I might actually be kind of introducing some new material to those who haven't really pondered this. But people could say that today it's different, right? This is not... Um, this is not 1787 or 1789 or 1800, etc. Um, some people understand that war is harmful to liberty, but they could claim that preparing for war in order to, to prevent a war or waging one now to stop a worse one later is consistent with libertarian principles. They would argue, this, this group of people would argue, the threats this time are real and grave and gathering, grave and gathering, you might have heard that. The fear of the growth of the state, they argue, is overblown and misplaced. Well, I hope that at least the second part of that argument is less true among this audience than it would be among the, the random people that you find on the street in, on Massachusetts Avenue, right? That we are always fearful of the state, and we, we will not lightly put aside those things, but it's still possible to say that the threats that we're facing today are worth relaxing these fears or setting aside these fears temporarily. I think not. My colleagues think not uh, here at Cato. We say, and I say today, that the burden of proof in war is still on those making the case for war, not those making the case against precisely because many of the things that the advocates for war claim are grave and serious threats, I think are overblown. I also think they <clears throat> misperceive how US, the United States acting as the world's policeman, which it does and has, uh, contributes to other countries' unwillingness to defend themselves and creates a whole host of problems, including moral hazard, which we understand in different contexts, and also enormous costs on us as American taxpayers. Um, and so I just sort of, I call that welfare by another name, right? We are subsidizing other countries. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. But here's the other point. When the interventionists claim that a particular threat that's coming from abroad is greater than anything we could or would do to ourselves, I think they have a pretty uh, hard case to make. Right? I mean, even a non-war war against terrorism, the one that doesn't involve mass conscription or confiscatory taxation like we had in World War II, right? The war that we have fought against terrorists since 9-11 has, after all, entailed the wholesale violation of basic civil rights and an erosion of the rule of law, from George W. Bush's torture memos to Barack Obama's secret kill list. So... I think that in this war, this modest war, this barely a war to most of us who won't be fighting it, 
it still has led to the growth of the state. And so for the balance of my time today, I'm going to try and convince you of that fact. I'm going to try to convince you that the United States is, or at least should be, in a strong position to implement a, what I call a libertarian foreign policy, a restrained foreign policy, uh, and I think one that harkens back to the founder's vision. Uh, but even though I will argue that we should do that, I'm not going to argue that it's easy. Nothing we do is, right? Nothing worth doing is easy. So let's go back to the foreign policy founded, that was supported by the founders. This is another passage from the, the farewell address. Separated as we are by a world of water from other nations, if we are wise, we shall surely avoid being drawn into the labyrinth of their politics and involved in their destructive wars. That was, the, that was his vision. And then he said this, the great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. A more succinct variation of this is Thomas Jefferson from the first inaugural address. He said he would pursue a foreign policy of peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations entangling alliances with none. That was 1801. So let's consider what these gentlemen were looking at in 1801. In 1801, the British were still in Canada, of course. Uh, the Spanish were in, in Florida. Not very well, by the way. Not doing a very good job in Florida, but holding on nonetheless. Then you had this circumstance, which as a Navy guy, it's sort of near and dear to my heart, which I just ask you to ponder for a moment. We had this situation in the early 1800s where if you were a merchant seaman, if you were an American that set to set sail on a whaling vessel or a, some kind of trading ship, and a British man of war sidles alongside you and says, you there, you, your last name is Smith. You must be a deserter from the British Navy. You're coming with us. Or the French to say, oh, you there, you look French. What's your name? Sincere. Oh, yes, yes, you're, no, no, no. You must be a deserter from the French Navy. You're coming with us. Happened all the time. And then on top of all that, we had these folks, Native Americans, who were understandably, I think we can say in retrospect, a little anxious to halt the encroachments of these white Anglos, etc. And so you had constant attacks on the frontier every day. And yet, these men, when they created this document with, the, with I think, some quite significant restrictions on the, state, on the state's ability to wage war, confronting this kind of scenario, they still tilted towards constraining the state. And it worked for the first 150 or so years of, the, of American history, give or take a few. Chris Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Read more of his work at Cato.org.